This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we fulfill our most formidable custom request yet. A response to the grueling three-hour Stalin defense episode of Revolutionary Left Radio, where some unreconstructed Stalinists further scramble the brains of emergent left unity efforts. To help us recalibrate our communist compass, we welcome on Sean Guillory of the exemplary Sean's Russia blog to set the record straight on Yosef Vissarionovich Stalin. All right, so I don't have a spiel this time, so what are we doing, Lexi? Well, this one's been a long time coming. This is from our faithful Bonapartist, Adam. Comrade Brett from Red Left Radio hosted Jeremy and Justin from Proles of the Roundtable, a sort of raging tanky podcast of sorts, and had a long, almost three-hour defense of Stalin. And so our, our Bonapartist, Adam, when that episode came out, was like, you know, Swampside, you guys are the only people I could think of that I'd really like to hear just, like, lay into them, like, in a, in a way that only embittered commies can. I think we should mention, Adam said when he recommended this, his desire to you know see us take on this episode and all of that, that wasn't out of any kind of disdain for Brett or Rev Left Radio, that he actually is a fan of that show. No, no, it wasn't. And in fact, we did an episode with Brett of Rev Left Radio on the first High Theory episode with the Antifada. And Brett was a perfectly pleasant interlocutor, all around chill dude to talk to, you know what I mean? Like, I never felt, like, mischaracterized by him. Okay, back to our patient Bonapartist Adam. We sat on that response for, oh, I don't know, a year? <laughs> Until we thought we could do it right. And today, in order to do it right, we're bringing on Sean from the phenomenal podcast, Sean's Russia Blog. So, hi, Sean. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to. Um, may I ask a question? Absolutely. Yeah. What, what is this word, tanky? What is, I, I've never actually heard of it until maybe, like, I don't know, less than a year ago. What is this? I'm so glad we have somebody on the podcast who doesn't know what all the inside left words mean. That just makes me so happy. Maybe I'm just because I'm old, you know? Well, <laughs> no, it's an old term, though. That's the, that's the, that's the weird thing. Yeah. It's oh. an old term, and it's from internals in communist politics, yes. It's become something of a synonym for Soviet defensist, but the reason that it comes up is because of the Hungary uprising in 1956. Mm-hmm. And Khrushchev's decision to send in the tanks. Oh, and so uh-huh. if you supported sending in the tanks at that moment, you would be considered a tanky. And that oh, is sort see. of generalized from there to mean, you know, someone that supports this muscular, uh, statified form of socialism. And not a specifically, you know, anti-revisionist, you know, Stalin did nothing wrong kind even. Mm-hmm. But, you know... Just if you are a, a Marxist-Leninist who supports this vision of socialism, 
there are soft tankies that believe that Stalin did many things wrong, but they appreciate uh-huh. what he built. And then there's your hard tankies. Huh. That point to the transcripts of the purges as the heart of the matter, all you need to know about the purges. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah why would they lie? Well, no. <laughs> I see. I mean, I think there's actually problems with the term, too, in the way it lets people on the left who don't actually disagree that much with the people they're calling tankies just kind of distance themselves from, you know, those people, the bad authoritarians and me, I'm right. I'm, I've got my perfectly liberatory political ideology and all that, you know? Yeah. It seems to me that it's a term, I mean, both the, the deployment of it and the use of it, I'm assuming these people don't self-identify, right? It's a negative term. Well, sometimes you get people who, because they're on the other side of the left culture war about, you're a tanky, you're not a tanky, just go, yeah, well, I am a tanky. Oh, oh okay. I don't know what the round table people right. would, would think about it necessarily. Uh-huh. They would probably identify as a Marxist-Leninist podcast. Uh-huh. They touch on the phrase Stalinist, and I imagine that their position on Stalinism would be very similar to their position on tanky. Uh-huh. They actually compared it to the word emo. Oh, okay. Uh, which was like a music kind of subculture, etc. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. how, you know, if you get called something enough times, you know, you'll just sort of run with it. Right. You embrace it. Yeah. Right. It's a phenomenon that you find in left circles in a variety of ways, I think. And mm. and that is, it's an identity thing, right? It's about mm. either embracing or distancing oneself from a different type of political identity. But it, it seems to be, to me, as kind of looking at it from the outside, since I try not to engage in this kind of discourse, it comes across to me as basically uh, arguments over some sort of romantic ideas about, you know, Soviet history. <laughs> because, you know, from my perspective, somebody who's gone and looked at archives and, and know a lot of people who have looked at a variety of different archives from the Soviet period, when you get in there and start looking at the documents, you get a completely different sense of, you know, what was going on there. And it helped me look at that system with less ideologically colored lenses, uh, as a result. See, but that's the problem. You didn't look at the right documents. <laughs> right. Um, there's, there's like secret documents that only Grover Fur has ever seen. Yeah, he's an interesting character. <laughs> there were traces in the archives of Trotsky's letter proving that he wanted to kill Stalin, etc., etc. Dear Bukharin, I am going to kill Stalin because mustache man bad. Love Trotsky. P.S. I am gay. <laughs> Decided in Grover Fur's... Uh, Khrushchev lied. A couple of things, like one can say, is that it, of course, depends on the level of archival documents you look at, right? If you look at high state documents, you get one impression. If you look at documents that are about the lower kind of levels of society, you get a different impression. And it's not that those two aren't connected. So one of the things what you get is that if you look at the state documents, what you walk away from is a sense that these people weren't cynical. They were true believers. In fact, Lars Lee who I'm sure you're probably familiar with. If you're not, you should be. He edited a volume of letters between Stalin and Molotov uh, years ago. And one of the things he said in introduction always stuck with me, and that is, you know, the world would have done a lot better if Stalin was a little bit more cynical. Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And some of the scholarships that's been coming out in the last couple of years, you know, looking at like trying to reinterpret or try to understand, say, you know, 1937, 38 and the terror – are looking more at the international dimensions of it. And 
you know, there's a wonderful book that was published, I think, probably two years ago now by James Harris called The Great Fear. And he's looking at the terror in a response to a genuine fear that you see in the government documents, even at the highest rungs of the Soviet government, that they were indeed afraid in the sense of they were afraid that their power was very loose, that they didn't have that much control over the country that they couldn't rely on its own governmental institutions to run the country effectively. Violence was one of the few mechanisms that they had at their disposal as a form of governance, something that they learned during the Civil War and continued, that they were getting police reports from the countryside that were suggesting that peasants, if there was a war, which they all felt was coming at some point in the 1930s, that the population wouldn't fight for the Soviet government. And then the general international situation, when they looked out at Eastern Europe or Western Europe, the rise of fascism, when they looked out with their own kind of paranoid lenses, they really felt that their power was quite tenuous. And even Molotov at some point said in the 1970s in this series of interviews he did with a guy named Churov, he explained the terror as basically, you know, either we had to strike them or they were going to strike us. Now, who that them was, you know, is up for a lot of interpretation. And whether that them was really going to strike them first, I still think it speaks to the mentality that uh, Stalin and his circle were kind of working from. All that makes a ton of sense, and their position was precarious. You know, the Bolshevik Party, its base was in the proletariat in the cities, not in the countryside, which was overwhelmingly majority peasants who you know had like material interests that were in conflict with this drive to build up industry. That was actually a major problem. Is that, from what I understand, like part of the reason that the famines that happened got as bad as they did is because Stalin didn't trust the information that he was getting and assumed that like. People were really just hoarding and hiding stuff from the cadres and that there actually wasn't anything that – you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. political culture of this organization and the state gets to a point where people aren't incentivized to be honest. It isn't open. Nobody has any independence. You can't trust the information you're getting and that's how you right. get like these fucked up outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned that the, the base was in the, the proletariat in the cities. Well, most of that base dies in the Civil War, right? And then the way that this country has to keep up with the rest of the developed world and developing world is to proletarianize peasants, to use that like, like so many of the political classes managing transition out of tributary feudal societies. They had to disembed peasants from the means of production and – subject them to proletarianization. That was the fuel to keep the, the country going. And I mean, it didn't function exactly like capitalism. But that is one of the things about Russia as an example for revolutionaries today is you have to realize that it's a situation where even if the proletariat had survived the civil war largely, that they would have had to rule over against the majority of society in the country which is – it's quite a model to base your, your contemporary political organizing off of, isn't it? <laughs> it's only a problem if you have to build up industry in order to basically prevent imperialist incursion, right? You know, it seems like everybody else, right, you know, basically following from Marx and Engels, like initial recommendations was you don't rapidly collectivize the peasantry, you kind of slow walk it in. That is like the Stalin political project. That's like the chief aspect of his legacy, this gambit that he undertook in order to prepare for the war that was coming, right? I feel like that's the best case they could make. 
But li- that's what drove me nuts, like, listening to this podcast was that, like, you know, they spend so much time just, like, haggling down numbers or trying to say that, like, every, you know – like listening to the whole thing basically drove me nuts, but like there are <laughs> cases that they could make for their point. They do pretend at some kind of nuance, but it seems like it would always get down to actually like Stalin did nothing wrong. Like at the beginning part, they asked, I think the host asked him like what their criticism of Stalin was, right? And one was, well, maybe he didn't support <laughs> the Spanish Civil War, enough, right? But then they go, but. He had problems with uh, the Japanese invading Manchuria at the time, and so he really needed to shift resources over there. So that actually, that's not so bad. And actually, it was the NKVD that did everything <laughs> bad. Yeah, exactly. So how did they explain Stalin's signature in his big blue pencil on Operation Order 00447, which allowed for the mass operations by quota? I mean, how did they explain that his signature is everywhere in all of these documents? I mean – how could you not say that he's not responsible? You know, he, look, yeah, he wasn't responsible for like the way the terror worked out in some provincial town somewhere. But you know, there are two things about the terror that is easy to say put Stalin as the the beginning and the end of. It starts with his signature and it ends with his signature. The fact that the violence is turned off so quickly by the top suggests that the beginning of it and the end of it are very much tied to the central part of the government and Stalin personally. Now, what went on in between, okay, that's a matter of debate, and there are several processes going on, all of which, of course, Stalin is clearly responsible for. But I don't see how you could step back and say that he did nothing, I mean, to do nothing wrong. He's not, he's not a god, I mean, (laughs) yeah, these people have a completely instrumental way of dealing with this history. Like, it's kind of funny that you mentioned the Lars Lee stuff with the Molotov-Stalin letters, Mm -hmm. because the Pearls of the Roundtable folks, they also make the same point at the beginning of that episode. I don't know how long you actually listened to that episode. No, I didn't listen to any of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's uh, it's cool. (laughs) It's kind yeah, of a slog. I wouldn't recommend yeah, it. But I don't. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's bad. It's bad. You know, uh, all, all three of us, Adam. Just so you know, we freaking listened and we paid attention. And actually, the thing that maybe I think disturbed me the most about listening to this is that a kind of open-minded left unity Marxism without adjectives attracts hard anti-revisionist types, hard tankies. This sort of ideology, like flies to honey. And our intellectual resources for rebutting this stuff, like when you see genuine sort of socialist political attempts to do recruitment outside of the Democratic Party or outside of the big parties or even inside the big parties, whatever, this becomes an ideological bugaboo. It will engage with the latest scholarship to a degree, but in order to pave over history, like someone that is making the point that the bureaucracy under Stalin and the Central Committee didn't have as much reach as they wanted to, as a way of saying, well, you see, it wasn't really a one-man dictatorship because he couldn't actually control everything. That's where all this falls down. It's like the question of like Stalin's agency, because there's a lot of goalpost moving that goes around. On some level, I don't think I was really the audience for this podcast. <laughs> I think they're in like this constant argument with like some lib in their mind, who has like this view of the Soviet Union that, you know, is just kind of like yeah, basically like 1984, you know, mustache man bad. It's kind of stuff. And that's who they're really talking to. One of the problems, it seems to me, is that, you know, how much agency Stalin had. 
It's kind of not an interesting question in many respects. Yes. I've taught courses on Stalinism for a number of years now. And one of my things I try to get my students to understand is how do we understand Stalinism without Stalin? Because one of the more fascinating aspects of the period that, that I think is how the Stalinist regime utilized mass mobilization to carry out its mass campaigns of collectivization or the terror or any of its major other industrialization, its revolution of the early 1930s. And as the former president or the head of Memorial, which is a human rights organization in Russia that catalogs the names of the repressed and they deal with trying to keep the memory alive and stuff like this. It's a very wonderful organization. Many years ago, the head of Memorial was giving a talk on Stalinism. And one of the things that he said always kind of stuck with me is like, well, yeah, you know, you can say, you know, we have Stalin's signature on these things. We know, you know, he's running the government. It is a dictatorship. I mean, these questions are, are non-controversial, you know, at least in my opinion. But what he said that I found really profound was he said, you know, yeah, we can blame everything on Stalin, but how do we explain the four million denunciations? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we explain the fact that neighbors denounce each other? Or how do we explain the fact that when people stood up and denounced their boss, that boss was being arrested and taken or their comrades or whatever. You know, how do we understand a society that did indeed cannibalize itself in this period? This to me is the more interesting question. To talk about Stalin's culpability, in my view, is a conversation of maybe 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> What you just said also kind of points to something that they'll do and they'll go, see, these were mass movements. Like this is the whole population doing this. And therefore it was democratic because he was just kind of at the head of this like sort of mass – Okay, fine. You know, mass uprising against – Right. Well, actually that democratic thing is one of the things I was going to address because they go – when they get to the part about Bukharin, this was one of my favorite parts of the Proles of the Round Table episode is they go, yeah, well, after a series of terrorist attacks, there was a – vote by the central committee that there needed to be a purge as if the critique of democracy in the soviet union is like yeah we really needed a dozen people to decide that we should do a purge you know like if only if only there had been a vote at the central committee level to but but again yeah there is that uh mass involvement you know and they'll frequently bring up during the episode that not everything was done by stalin they, these overzealous sub commanders and bloodthirsty intercompeting yeah, people working for him right but it's it's sort of like how can you talk about that and not fathom that maybe as the leader of a political party that you would want to have certain antagonisms play out within the party you to be able to step back and then once it's over once people have fought it out you go you pick the winning side and you say you know people did things that weren't right but we're okay well, I mean, look, if people want to argue that this had elements of democracy, then at least they should try to understand what that meant at the time and what that meant in that context. So, for example, there's a wonderful book called Terror and Democracy by Wendy Goldman, who's a Soviet professor just up the road from me. She opens the book in this really fascinating anecdote about there's this worker who is giving a speech in the factory at a factory meeting, and he's talking about how, you know, six months ago, I saw our director of our factory. He was driving around in a fancy car, and his wife was wearing a fur coat, and he was clearly corrupt. So I wrote a letter to Comrade Yezhov, and I said, Comrade Yezhov, something needs to be done about him. He needs to be investigated. And, well, I got no answer. So a few months later, I wrote another letter, and then another letter. 
I think it was three letters. And then he goes, finally, one day, they came and arrested our banager. That is Soviet democracy in its best form. <laughs> in a way, you could say, wow, um, who wouldn't want to denounce their boss? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, right? No, that's what um, I was going to say. Like, If this is what it's like under President Bernie Sanders, I might have to seriously consider making phone calls for him. <laughs> yeah, like – on the one hand, there is something incredibly, at the mildest form, carnivalesque, right? A turning of power structures and tables. But on the other hand, like, is this the type of democracy we want where people can be denounced and then kind of taken away and shuffled off to who knows God knows where, a basement somewhere and shot? I mean, See something, say something. I think a lot of leftists could use a, a viewing of the crucible. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like... I mean, if they are managers, maybe. Like, maybe managers and landlords. I mean, you know, is democracy, like, when they're collectivizing agriculture and they send out a bunch of 18-year-olds to ransack villages and they go into peasant homes and totally, like, steal everything as part of the effort to collectivize agriculture... Yeah, it's democratic in the sense of it's a mass mobilized, you know, enthusiastic people who are going out and wreaking havoc. But is this like the type of democracy we want in a socialist society? I mean, my God. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think the flashpoint of this conversation is the work of J. Arch Getty. Oh, yes. I know Arch very well. <laughs> On the episode, there is a recommended reading list. And on top of, you know, Grover Fur and everything else, you were kind of looking at that reading list, Sean, and said, besides Getty, you know, why wouldn't you read, you know, some of the more contemporary literature? I'm going to something like that. Yeah, something like that. I kind of assumed that somebody like Getty would be horrified by this. What's your take on this? And what's your background with him? Well, I studied with Arch. I wrote my dissertation under him. I've known him for almost 20 years now. You know, I know his family. He's had a great influence on, you know, the way I see Soviet Russia and the role of archival documents. I mean, he was one of the first to actually get into these archives. Another man named Gabor Ritterspoorn and a Russian historian named Viktor Zemkov were the first to write an article about the numbers in the Gulag system, for example, right after the archives opened. How does Arch see where he stands? I mean, on the one hand, I think the first thing you have to understand is that when he wrote The Origins of the Great Purges in the 80s, he was attacked mercilessly by people like Robert Conquest and others. Uh, he wasn't the only one, of course. Other historians that tried to look at the Stalin period from below or do a social history of it that tried to decenter Stalin as an individual alpha and omega of the system received a lot of criticism and a lot of unfair criticism as a result. And as the archives opened, the ironic thing of all these books, people like Lynn Viola, Arch Getty, Sheila Fitzpatrick, these revisionist historians, when the archives opened, the strange thing about it is a lot of their conclusions were confirmed. I mean, Arch maintained in the origins of Great Purges that the amount of people shot was way below all of the numbers that, say, Robert Conquest suggested. And when the archives opened, indeed, it was about 800,000 people who were shot. If numbers matter to you, you know, <laughs> these numbers were always part of the debate and the back and forth. And like, oh, if you say there are less people killed, then you must be a Stalin apologist and all of this stuff. So that's a long way of saying that for him and the, the tradition and the milieu he came up in as a young historian, it was a very politically fraught one and very personalized as well. What he's told me about Fur, and I don't want to speak for him 
on this, but he says that Fur actually knows the documents really well. He just makes strange conclusions from them. <laughs> you know, like his Khrushchev book, which granted, I haven't read, I've only read about. Um, I don't read his stuff. The basic fact of Khrushchev lying isn't wrong. His speech denouncing Stalin was a totally personally political move on his part. Right. But that doesn't mean that everything he said was completely off base and made up. Right. You know, the ironic thing about Khrushchev denouncing Stalin is that Khrushchev was in charge of Moscow during the terror. Like, my God, Khrushchev was in charge of running Ukraine during recollectivization after the end of World War II. Like, you know, none of these Bolsheviks are nice guys mm. in Stalin's circle. They all have blood on their hands in a variety of different ways. Right. That's an interesting thing that keeps coming up when they're debunking people like Conquest, right? They go ahead and they push back against a number that's obviously not true, right? Say the idea that 8 million people were arrested during the purges, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's always this leap of logic that reveals that, nah, this isn't about historical scholarship. This is about political defense of Daddy Stalin, right? Because they'll say, you know, well, 8 million people couldn't have been arrested during the purges because there were only 8 million industrial workers. I mean, I don't know that that's the case. I, I haven't looked at the numbers, but it doesn't seem like the Soviet Union was majority proletarian at that point. No, not by any means. <laughs> if the purges are being conducted against the so-called kulaks, right? Yeah. Then how does your number of 8 million industrial workers make sense? Unless you're admitting, right, that there were proletarians who were purged, which is a whole different issue that you, you're then bringing up <laughs> about yourself, right? So there are actually numbers, right? They pick this low-hanging right-wing academic fruit that they then say, well, this is wrong. But then it ends up not being about presenting a novel, interesting, nuanced look at what happened or what were the social dynamics? What was this system bigger than Stalin? It ends up just being apologism. Right. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the work you're talking about, because it sounds like it's not that. It sounds like no. it's going against both the politics of anti-communism and the politics of Stalin did nothing wrong. Yeah, and I have to say, like, far be it from me to put up a strong defense of Robert Conquest, but I, I will give him this, is that, look, he was working with the information he had available to him. He wrote The Great Terror in the 60s. He didn't have archival documents. He only had memoirs. He had hearsay. He had newspapers, maybe. He didn't have the information that, say, somebody working in the 1990s did. I mean, neither did Arch when he wrote The Origins of the Great Purges. The problem with Conquest is that after the archives opened, he didn't really revise his view. And that is something like, say, take a Lynn Viola, whose first book was on the 25,000er movement in collectivization, and essentially was arguing that, you know, there was some sort of social support for collectivization amongst industrial workers, if you look at this movement. Now, her latest book is looking at perpetrators in the NKVD. Like, she's gone the completely opposite direction, or like her book on special settlements, of de-Kulak eyes and where they were dumped in the middle of Kazakhstan or southern Siberia. So, you know, people like Arch, people like Lynn Viola, people like Sheila Fitzpatrick, I mean, they're historians. And honestly, like, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, like, what is politically at stake anymore? Russia of the early 20th century is like an alien world compared to us now. Right. Um, <laughs> you know... Yeah, that's, that's what's the most mystifying about it. Um, <laughs> 
why they have to like uphold what they say is like the Marxist Leninist line. It's very bizarre. You know, they'll often say stuff like, well, Stalin didn't really actually have any like unique contributions or whatever. That's why it's Marxism Leninism. Stalin was just like a codifier. It's like, well, what are you even defending? You know, like I, you know, I, I could say like on some level, like uphold and defend, you know, say like Lenin or Bukharin or Trotsky, in, in spite of their, you know, actual like political successes or failures or their effect on history, because they do have like original theoretical ideas to contribute to Marxism. Like if Stalin doesn't even have that, like what is there to uphold and defend? You know, mm-hmm. the legacy of the Soviet Union that eventually collapsed. Uh, and well, the other thing too is like, well, Stalin kept the bureaucrats in line, which I feel like there's <laughs> yeah, there's some truth to that. But like, what does it say that like this completely independent of Stalin, like this bureaucratic thing just emerges out of the mists to like overwhelm the socialist society and control it for most of its existence, except for the period where you had like the mustache man to discipline it. Like, what does that say? Like, this shit just raises way more questions than it answers. But it continues this, like, Stalinoid style of, like, liturgical, like, because of A, then B, and therefore C. And so the matter's settled, and if you don't agree with me, then you're just, like, a secret capitalist or whatever, you know? (laughs) I don't know what this kind of Stalin obsession is. I mean, you know, granted, look, I spent a lot of time reading about the 1920s and 1930s in the Soviet Union, but not to either defend or condemn that system. I mean, if I would step back and, you know, judge it morally, I mean, my God, yeah. <laughs> you know, taking people, beating them up on false pretenses and then forcing confessions and then taking and putting a bullet in their back of their head is morally an awful thing. <laughs> Even from just a Marxian perspective, right? Well, when we're getting into the minutia of how should political purges have been carried out, I just think to the fact that, well, the Paris Commune burned the guillotine in the streets. Right. Mm-hmm. And Marx was happy about that. Yeah. And look what happened to them. How long did they last? <laughs> <laughs> There's a funny story I was um, – yeah, you know what? Never mind. No, 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 come on. Come on. Funny story. Funny I would story. like to hear the funny story. Oh, okay. Yeah. So – there's a book called Revolution on My Mind by Jochen Helbeck. It's a fascinating book. It was published in the early 2000s. And it's based on diaries. And what Helbeck was after is tried to see if there is a kind of Stalinist identity within the population. Mm. And he did this by looking at diaries, you know, people writing for themselves. And he, he found some really kind of really interesting things about what is a Stalinist subjectivity. And how that Stalinist subjectivity was sometimes even more Stalinist than Stalin, which is a fascinating, like, historical study. And there's been lots of stuff done in response to that over the years. But at anyways, I remember being at a presentation that Helbeck was giving because he, he actually – one of the guys that he focuses on is a, a man named Stepan Polubny, where he got his diaries from the 1930s. And this guy Polubny was still alive in the 1990s. So Helbeck interviewed him. And, uh, you know, had him talk about his diaries and what he remembered and all this stuff. He was showing the video of this interview he was doing with this guy. And there was this really interesting moment where they were talking about perestroika and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Polubny says, unprovoked, you know, it just goes to show that Stalin was right and he didn't kill enough enemies of the people. <laughs> and Helbig was like, like, what do you mean by that? He said, well, Gorbachev was the grandson of a kulak. <laughs> and look what Gorbachev did. Yeah, it's in the blood. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course. It's class essence. <laughs> well, actually, that actually reminds me of something else I found funny in the Proles of the Roundtable episode. 
there's a part where they're going, well, obviously Stalin needed to kill all those people in the Red Army, right? And their backup for this is they quote Goebbels' journal <laughs> and they quote Hitler saying like, oh, you know, Stalin's in a more powerful position after doing that purge of the Red Army. So you've got this admiring quote from Hitler that they just take literally. And I mean, frankly, people who identify as Marxist-Leninists tend to call people fascist left and right. <laughs> and then they just take Adolf Hitler at his word on this one thing because it says Stalin did the right thing, purging the Red Army. That's actually something I wanted to ask you about was not only your opinions on these sort of ideas that say, you know, uh, Trotsky was a fascist or what the hell ever, right? Which I have my huge criticisms of Trotsky, right? But that seems a little bizarre to me. And then to kind of pivot from Trotsky, I think we could talk a little bit about the treatment of Jews in the Soviet Union under mm -hmm. Stalin. But, yeah. but just, just to start, I mean, the accusations that were made against people like Bukharin, against people like Trotsky, I mean, was there truth to these? No. I mean, in terms of like trying to organize a, some sort of counter-revolution or spies for Germany and German fascist Trotskyist Bukharinist Kamenevist spies or something like this? Right. I mean, the more adjectives you string on there, the less sane you sound to a normal person is something these people don't realize. They might as well have just said Trotsky went home to his home planet. Like <laughs> it, just, uh, it just speaks to the mentality of the time and the way they saw the world. I mean, that's the more horrifying thing is that they in their own logic could link all of these disparate political forces, the right-left conspiracy, right, in a chain of a mass conspiracy. Gabor Rittersporn, who is a colleague of Arch and, and a very lovely man in general, some of the things he wrote about was the omnipresent conspiracy, that these people in the government, all you have to do is open a newspaper at the time, in the 30s. I mean, there are conspiracies everywhere. There are wreckers. There are kulaks. There's the party member wearing the mask that needs to be unmasked. There's the right-left conspiracy. There's the Trotskyist, Bukharinist, Japanese fascist spies. I mean, I don't know what there is to defend there, but it looks like a government that's perpetuating a mass psychosis. Right, and the, the proles of the round table even say stuff about how, you know, the, all the show trials couldn't possibly be show trials because they were so meticulous and they took so long and there's 800 pages of documents yeah. as if that wouldn't be part of the ideological ritual that's taking place. And that's the thing. It totally is. Well, we all know that the amount of pages something has is how true it is. That's what all Stephen <laughs> King's novels, those are all true. You can't just make something up for 800 pages. <laughs> I mean, the fascinating thing about all of this stuff in, in the 30s and all of the horrible and violent episodes is that they kept records in all of this. They weren't shy about what they were doing. Um, I mean, granted, they weren't releasing these to the public, but internally they were creating these documents. And thank God, because we wouldn't know if they didn't keep such meticulous records in many respects. But in terms of going back to like a Trotsky, I mean, in my view, Trotsky's main crime is just being kind of an asshole. <laughs> he just wasn't very well liked. Like if you read Stephen Cotkin's first volume of the Stalin biography, I mean, one of the things that comes across quite clear is that Trotsky, what didn't do him any favors is that he just was a prick. Yeah. And everybody hated him as a result. He, he was just an arrogant ass. And, and ironically, Stalin wasn't. Uh. In that personalized political atmosphere, that went a long way. Right, and Trotsky only comes to his his ideas about democracy and bureaucratic collectivism after he gets purged. Absolutely. Yeah, he's transparently a hypocrite. The Trotsky-Stalin fight is very personal. Very personal. The ideology on both sides 
and the various theoretical things are part of the way politics is carried out in this political culture. You speak in terms of Marxism-Leninist doctrine. You speak in terms of, like, the class enemy and this and that. Uh, you speak in terms of, like, referencing Lenin's writings as some sort of biblical, you know, Talmudic text of sorts. That's, that's the political culture that they developed in. That is the thing that was kind of one of the carryovers from Lenin is that theoretical authority was like an aspect of like Lenin's rule or his leadership, we should say, in the Bolshevik party. And it's like Stalin almost turned it inside out where it's like he basically had like the power on a more like real politic organizational level. Yeah, he was a politician. But he used the theory like the stick to cudgel people with, mm -hmm. whereas Lenin, it was more the opposite. Like people respected him for his theory, but there was also like a more practical political aspect, right? Stalin understood very quickly that it's different being a revolutionary party and being a party running a state. Mm -hmm. Right. He understood, I think, that by the mid-1920s, the Bolshevik party was not the same Bolshevik party. The vast majority of the old guard from the revolutionary period was already overwhelmingly a minority. I mean, the Bolshevik party itself went from 22,000 in February 1917 to over 70,000 in November 1917. The old guard is already eclipsed by a new generation of people who aren't from the underground, who are half-literate, who maybe are Civil War veterans, who come from the factory floor, like people like Yezhov, for example, who was a metal worker, who are more practical in the sense they don't really understand or care about theory. They care about work. I mean, one of the things that got Yezhov such a, a skyrocketing career and the social mobility in the system and the party in general is your ability to be, as Yezhov was referred to, as a good party worker. And as a result, by the mid-1920s, Stalin's politics and the politics of regional party secretaries begin to converge because he's calling for more power to party secretaries while Trotsky's calling for more democracy. And party secretaries out in the countryside, that's the last thing they want is more democracy because they don't want to listen to those people who are below them. They want to like get through all of the disagreements and move forward. So Stalin gives them the blanket to start cracking heads and get rid of these quote-unquote Trotskyists. So you get this convergence in the mid-1920s of political interests in the center and political interests in the periphery by, you know, the Stalin group, the anti-Trotsky group, one may say, and the political interests in the periphery. And as a result, the Trotskyists and whoever else aligns with them lose because they're fighting a different fight at this point. Hmm. I want to be respectful of Sean's time, so maybe we should pick a few more main points on this that we want to hit and then uh, wrap it up. I'm always willing to come back, too, if you want. That would be awesome. The ethnicity questions yeah. would be really great to take on when we're talking about somebody like Stalin, who uh, there's actually a case there. Don't, they don't say it outright, <laughs> but there's a little bit of a thing where they're like, was Stalin really a white man? Yeah, was Stalin really <laughs> European? Yes. Is this a But wait, let's not even open that can of worms, yeah, right? For, uh, um, uh, okay. I mean, there is a famous left book saying that Stalin was as brown as the Georgian earth, <laughs> <laughs> but we won't go there. Yeah, because you asked about Jews. I can speak about ethnic policy in general, but the Jewish case is actually quite interesting because there's a wonderful book that actually just came out about anti-Semitism in the Russian Revolution. Uh, and I just interviewed a guy about uh, Jews in Belarus in the 1920s, but... 
What's really interesting about Jews is that on the one hand, the revolution emancipates Jews in the Russian Empire, in the Soviet system. Uh, Jews do make a disproportionate amount of members of the elite of the party. They don't dominate, but they're overrepresented per their population in the former Russian Empire. There's ethnic policy, uh, nationalities policy, that in the beginning allows the Jews to have a fairly autonomous political organization, though they eliminate that in the mid-20s. But they do allow, as part of its ethnic policy, to have things like Yiddish newspapers, allow for autonomous uh, cultural space, things like this. And there is a, a state-sponsored campaign, particularly in the late 20s and early 30s, against anti-Semitism. However, you do have these very strange things with Soviet ethnic nationality policy, and that by the late 1930s, nationality policy takes a turn to a more Russifying to the point of ethnic cleansing for a lot of the borderland groups. And then within that context, you have the creation of this bitter Bijan experiment, this Jewish homeland in eastern Siberia, which is just a very strange phenomenon. Right. The Jewish autonomous oblast. Yeah, which, you know, at the time, you had thousands of people from all over the world moving to because it was seen as finally Jews are given a state or some sort of autonomous region of their own. And that is totally consistent with Soviet nationality policy in the late 1920s and 1930s. Well, it was more consistent than they were willing to be. There was a while that Stalin didn't consider Jews to be a historical nation. Is that correct? Right. Well, see, that's the thing. Soviet ethnic policy always had a strange contradiction embedded in it. On the one hand, it saw for backward nationalities, of which Jews weren't one of them, Jews were considered one of the more advanced nationalities, they needed to become a nation first. So, for example, this is best seen in Central Asia, where you get the actual creation of languages, like the Turkmen language is a completely artificially created language by Soviet officials and ethnographers and others. Huh. Um, you get the creation of literary canons, like the literary canon of Ukraine, or the literary canon of other ethnic populations within the Soviet Union. You get newspapers, you get even representation in Soviets based on ethnicity. And in the early 1920s and 1930s, you have an affirmative action program where people of non-Russian ethnicity actually go ahead of Russian ethnics in terms of jobs, education, and things like this. So on the one hand, you have this promotion of nationality in culture. At the same time, you have repression of nationalism. And this is the idea of a nation state that is separate from or distinct from the Soviet Union. So at the same time, they're creating the literary canon for Ukraine. They're repressing Ukrainian nationalism. One of the things that I'm looking at now, because I'm doing a project on African-Americans in the Soviet Union, in 1928, at the Sixth Commandant Congress, they pass a resolution called the Black Belt Thesis, which is calling for the creation of an autonomous African-American republic within the United States. It's a nationalist policy. At the same time, they're denouncing African-American nationalists <laughs> as bourgeois. And then, of course, in your notes, you had something about the doctor's plot. Right. In the Cold War, with the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War, you have a couple of things that are coming together to create, for the first time, 
an official anti-Semitic policy by the Soviet government. First, you have Stalin's own personal anti-Semitism and paranoia, but you have the creation of Israel that the Soviet Union supported, but then aligns with the United States. So it's part of that Cold War context. You have the Holocaust, which in the memory of World War II in the Soviet Union is not considered a distinct event that's separate from the loss of Soviet citizens to Nazism, because you have you know 26 million Soviet citizens killed in the war and 6 million Jews, and the Soviets don't recognize the Holocaust as a distinct event, and it becomes embroiled with a nationalism of Zionism. So this is one of the contexts for the anti-cosmopolitanism campaign, which is directly tied to Jews. The doctor's plot, of course, of which I think a large percentage of the people arrested were Jews. So that context in the last years of Stalin's life contributes to that official anti-Semitic campaign. You mentioned personal anti-Semitism. Is there kind of historical record of, of personal anti-Semitism for Stalin? There is. Any heated gamer moments we can drop on here? Yeah, there's references he makes to Trotsky. But, you know, at the same time, like some of his close lieutenants, like Lazar Kaganovich, who's Jewish. And it always comes down to this question of what does it even mean to these people to be Jewish? I mean, Trotsky never really considered himself a Jew. But Stalin did, you're saying, basically? Yeah, yeah. There's evidence of him making comments about Trotsky being Jewish that, you know, is quite slanderous and offensive. Mm. Should we talk about Stalin-Hitler relations? Because that's another thing they point to is like, okay, uh, like Trotsky's a secret fascist and or people are planning to hand things over to the Germans. But it's like, you know, Stalin also kind of collaborated with Nazis in a way that, uh, you know, we shouldn't be super comfortable with. Either Hitler-Stalin pact? Well, yeah, there was that, but he also, like, it took him a long time to, like, accept that, like, that whole thing was falling apart and, like, the war was going to get started pretty soon. That would seem to be, like, another, like, recurring thing with Stalin was he didn't always believe the information that he was getting if it didn't, like, confirm his biases. Part of that is that he didn't realize the extent to which the Nazi political state was exerting power over the German bourgeoisie, and so Stalin figured that the German capitalists would stop a blunderous war. But the main thing was more that he was – his sights were mainly on, like, British imperialism. Yeah. His head was still very much in the paradigm where, you know, like, Britain is the top dog of, like, the world imperialist hierarchy. Right. Even though the sun was kind of setting on that. That's why – so you said Lexi tried to actually join, the, like, the Axis powers? Is yeah, that... there was. I looked that yeah, up. Yeah, in 1940. Yeah, I actually looked that up because I didn't know about that. So I, I looked that up earlier today, and there was a series of meetings between Molotov in Berlin – about joining the Axis powers. But at the same time, I think Stalin and his people understood very well what was coming their way. Right. I think their problem is, is that they were hoping it wasn't because they were not prepared and they understood that very well. Right. I mean, the Hitler-Stalin pact, you know, whatever one may think of it morally or politically, I don't think anyone could argue anything different than it was an attempt to delay the inevitable and mm. try to create some sort of, you know, buffer between the German onslaught and the Soviet Union. I guess the narrow point I was making was that, like, you know, people sort of point fingers and 
come up with like these fictitious plots to like collaborate with the fascists or whatever. When like he was literally like you know collaborating with fascists. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think the analysis of fascism was too little, too late mm-hmm. from the Soviet side. Uh, though you know it's weird. I don't know a lot about this, but it, it's strange because like I've been looking in the archives of the Comintern, but also the archives of the American Communist Party. And they're actually talking about fascism really early, far earlier than I thought. So I don't really understand, like, I don't have my head fully wrapped around the third period and why they Mm. make this social fascism thing the focus of their obsessions, where at the same time, they're speaking very clearly about fascism in Italy and fascism in Germany and fascism in Eastern Europe. So I don't know. Yeah, I, my my memory on that history is a little bit fuzzy. It's something I'd probably have to revisit. Well, it's confusing. I mean, because their concerns aren't just Germany, right? I mean, not only do they have a fascist state, the strongest state in Europe, in Germany, they have Poland, they have Romania, they have Hungary, they have Bulgaria. I mean, they have fascist or right-wing authoritarian anti-communist states. Finland is another one along their entire western borderlands. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Baltic states is another one. So for them, it's the way they see it is that they are seeing fascist plots everywhere. And then, of course, there's Japan, which is a whole nother issue. Yeah. But for them, their concerns aren't just Nazi Germany. They're very, very, very concerned about Poland. They spend a lot of time talking about Poland, for example. But at the same time, I think you're right in the sense that in terms of imperialist powers, they are more concerned with Britain And I think that might have something to do with the fact that there is – and this is, I think, not given as much importance as it should. And that is the war scare of 1927, Hmm. which is seen as an imminent British invasion of the Soviet Union through Central Asia as a potential route. And, you know, there's been some pretty interesting scholarship looking at the relationship between the war scare and collectivization, for example. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah. So at the time – So some of the stuff that's been written, what it says is that at the time of the war scare, you have a couple of factors internally within Russia that makes the Stalinist government very nervous and allows them to actually hit the right, the Bukharness, very hard. And that is you have a poor harvest in 1927. You have growing mass unemployment in the cities amongst the base of the party, which is industrial workers. You have police reports coming in from the countryside talking about how peasants are hoarding grain, there are rumors of a war coming, they are not going to fight for the state, all sorts of stuff that they're basically showing that they're going to withhold grain. And then the international pressure of the potential war, and one scholar suggested that this is one of the reasons why they take this hard line in 28, basically to seize grain. Right. Because one, they fear that the kulak broadly defined, is withholding grain, and a war is coming. And it just kind of spirals from there (laughs) after the Euro-Siberian method. I mean, that kind of tracks. Like, that kind of makes intuitive sense to me. And, like, war was kind of always on their mind, you know. Always. So, and something like that, I could definitely see it, like, putting them into, like, full-on, like, oh, shit mode, you know. Yeah, but, you know, that's the thing, and I think that, you know, people who try to understand, say, the early Soviet period or Stalinism in general, I mean, this is a regime that's born out of chaos and war and destruction. For me, to understand the 1920s and 1930s, you have to go back to at least 1905. You know, I got a class last year on the Russian Revolutionary Movement, 
And this isn't talked about a lot, you know, in kind of leftist circles. And that is, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on like the Marxist, the social democratic wing of the revolutionary movement. What we don't actually focus on is the amount of violence that was used by terrorism. Yeah. From 1900, I think, I might have my figures wrong, but from 1900 to 1914, there are over 17,000 victims of terrorism from the revolutionary movement. And this includes not just like blowing up and shooting cops in the street. This is bank robberies by a whole set of revolutionary organizations. The Socialist Revolutionary Party has a special wing dedicated to terrorism. In 1905 and 1907, it's an incredibly violent affair in the sense of not only do you have revolutionary violence, you have peasant uprisings where they're sending the Tsarist military to basically bombard villages to suppress uprisings that last until 1907. And then you have a war breakout in 1914 with millions of refugees. And then you have the revolution yeah. and civil war. I mean, if there's any lesson, I think, that we as leftists should take from the Soviet experience is to really understand and not romanticize revolution. Mm -hmm. Because that society was broken. In the 1920s, I just looked this up yesterday, there were 7 million homeless children in Russia. And then, you know, famine, disease of the Civil War period. And so you have this party that their tradition is more on making revolution than actually constructing a society, is taken power by a coup with popular support, but has a very tenuous grip on power, and violence is one of the ways in which you govern. So, yeah. Yeah. Does anybody have any other... I mean, I have rabbit hole portal under the name Holodemore here. Oh. <laughs> that we could open, but... God, that part of the episode was so fucking boring. I mean, oh my god. It was about an hour of calling... All those sources, Nazis and fascists, and, you know. Look, I don't know much about the famine in Ukraine, but I know that when you listen to real-life Holocaust deniers, what they'll do is say that all the sources of the numbers in the Holocaust were all, like, Jewish communist lies. <laughs> I don't, I, what's the controversy over the, the Ukrainian famine? I mean, five million people died uh, of starvation because the Bolsheviks extracted the shit out of the countryside. Well... They took everything. The claim that's being put forward here is that this isn't comparable to the Holocaust and any idea that there was some kind of political, national, ethnic prejudice that went into targeting that famine is a fascist Nazi lie. There's an internal left culture war, basically, about whether it was a genocide or not. Yeah, I don't agree that it was a genocide either, though. I don't yeah, either, yeah. but I think that misses the point. It's like, oh, was it a genocide? Was it not? It's like, oh, I see. So everything hangs on that question. <laughs> they use the debate about whether it was a genocide, right? So it's like, do you think that the term that actually refers to, like, targeted ethnic trying to wipe people out, right, should be extended to this thing? That becomes a distraction debate from, you know, did the Bolsheviks do horrible things in Ukraine? Do they also consider the famine in the lower Volga and in Kazakhstan at the very same time. <laughs> that actually plays, that's what the most erudite, not even just a apologist, but communists will say is that, look, the best evidence that this wasn't like a nationally targeted thing is that this is a broader famine than the area that was supposedly nationally targeted. I mean, it, it's a weird logic because, you know, millions of people still died <laughs> I mean, well, because of Bolshevik policy. Yeah. 
Well, no, Stalin doesn't control the weather, so... <laughs> I, th- I think there's an argument to be made, not that it's comparable to the Holocaust, but it's like a core periphery thing. And if you care about imperialism, you have to also look inside nations and look at the core of a nation and the periphery of a nation. Mm-hmm. And there are, like, backwards territories that get the shaft. That's what happens. Well, one of the things it sounds like in this kind of weird defend Stalin debate, there's a kind of forgetfulness of the multi-ethnic aspect of the Soviet state. And particularly, you know, what it's trying to do in Central Asia, in Kazakhstan in particular, and trying to make a nomadic people sedentary, and the total disaster that accompanies that. I mean, you know, if people really wanted to make an interesting kind of discussion about this, it would be look at the Russian treatment of Kazakhs, even going back to the 19th century into the Soviet period, and say the American treatment of Sioux Indians, which they use a lot of the similar techniques. Right. There's actually a great book out about this, comparing these very two peoples. And both systems are, you know, whether SARS or Soviet and American are using similar types of methods to deal with nomadic peoples that they see as inferior and backward. Which book is that? The author is Stephen Sable. I have an interview with him somewhere on my site. Right. So what's interesting is that on the Proles of the Round Table podcast, they go, well, Stalin's Soviet Union maintained the languages of the indigenous people, whereas the Americans used schools to teach them English. I mean, so what? I mean, they had different nationality policies because they're in totally different ethnic contexts. Russia's right. relationship with the ethnic groups from the 17th century is totally different than American settler colonialism is just not the same. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Like to use this kind of whataboutism to try to make Russian imperialism better is just kind of foolish because, of course, it's different. There are different historical and political and economic conditions for Russian expansion. <laughs> yeah. But what you're saying is that it still ends up paving over indigenous peoples. Yeah, of course. Right. And there are mixed views of that, too. There's mixed views from those very peoples. You have different relationships of people from Central Asia and the Caucasus to the Soviet period. Some think it was great because the Soviet Union developed Bishkek and Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, and it educated people, right? It modernized them. You'll get that. And some will say, you know, it crushed our traditions and cultures. It's a very complex relationship, You know, Ukrainians have a different, because the famine, and the famine being a major trauma for the development of their modern national identity, they have a different understanding of the Soviet system than, you know, people in Uzbekistan do, or Kazakhstan. I don't know what the person who asked for this is looking for, but just going point by point against their points, it's a way, I just don't, it's a waste of time. Like Basically. Like, these people are going to believe what they want to believe. You know, my advice, like, read some other stuff that's not Grover Fur or sex pamphlets. <laughs> yeah. You know, make up your own mind. You're pretty smart. You'll figure it out. You can listen to my podcast and you can learn a lot. How about that? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good time for a plug. Yeah, listen to <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a SRB podcast at srbpodcast.org. Patreon is patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, S-E-A-N-S. Yes. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny because on that podcast episode – They say virtually the same thing, you know, just read and make up your mind for yourself. But I think there's a qualitative difference going on and something that drives a sort of like post-Marxist nihilism about words is when you hear the same things you say to mean something very, very different. (laughs) I don't know. Kind of like with Stalin. I don't think, you know, pearls of the round table speak privately 
differently than they speak publicly. I believe that they sort of believe that they're doing the left a service. And I believe in particular that Brett of Rev Left Radio believes that he's doing the left a service by hearing dissident views. I don't think that it's necessary to like posit any ill will there. He kind of reminds me of Joe Rogan in that sense. Yeah, right, right. Like, I don't feel the same way about Joe Rogan as I do about, you know, Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. Do you think Stalin ever did DMT? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, any other thoughts, or are we wrapping this up, or uh, what are you doing? Well, I think we got to thank Sean for coming on. This was phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, yeah, I'm sorry I was kind of all over the place. I mean, that's the show, though. That's what, that's how it always is. So. Oh, okay. That's yeah. us. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's us to a T. Yeah. Don't worry. This is Swampside Chats. Oh, okay, good, good, good. We would love to talk to you again. This was really fun. Yeah, anytime. That's it for this chat. We would like to thank Sean Guillory of Sean's Russia blog for his expertise and a great conversation. We would also like to thank our very patient Bonapartist Adam for his patience and support. Not One Step Back custom episodes like this one are made possible by Bonapartists like him and you. For just six easy payments of $10 a month, you too can have a Swampside Chats episode of your very own. Subscribe at patreon.com slash swampsidechats. If you'd like to enable our bong rip shenanigans in ways that cost $0, show approval for our pages on social media, Leave us a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice, except for Apple Podcasts, because they don't like us. Visit our homepage at swampside.chat for more. Swampside Chats is part of the Emancipation Podcast Network and Research Collective. Check out our comrade podcasts from Alpha to Omega and General Intellect Unit at emancipation.network, where you'll find me regularly on the From Alpha to Omega reading series, alongside Kyle from General Intellect Unit. Until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. Tomorrow.